Part One of the Perfect Tribute by Mary Raymond Shipman Andrews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lee Smalley. On the morning of November 18, 1863, a special train drew out from Washington, carrying a distinguished company. The presence with them of the Marine Band from the Navy Yard spoke a public occasion to come, and among the travellers there were those who might be gathered only for an occasion of importance. There were judges of the Supreme Court of the United States, there were heads of departments, the general-in-chief of the army and his staff, members of the cabinet. In their midst, as they stood about the car, before settling for the journey, towered a man sad, preoccupied, unassuming, a man awkward and ill-dressed, a man, as he leaned slouchingly against the wall, of no grace of look or manner, in whose haggard face seemed to be the suffering of the sins of the world. Abraham Lincoln president of the United States, journeyed with his party to assist at the consecration the next day of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. The quiet November landscape slipped past the rattling train, and the president's deep-set eyes stared out at it gravely, a bit listlessly. From time to time he talked with those who were about him, from time to time there were flashes of that quaint wit which is linked, as is his greatness, with his name. But his mind was to-day dispirited, unhopeful. The weight on his shoulders seemed pressing more heavily than he had courage to press back against it. The responsibility of one almost a dictator in a wide, war-torn country came near to crushing, at times, the mere human soul and body. There was, moreover, a speech to be made to-morrow, to thousands who would expect their president to say something to them worth the listening of a people who were making history, something brilliant, eloquent, strong. The melancholy gaze glittered with a grim smile. He, Abraham Lincoln, the lad bred in a cabin, tutored in rough schools here and there, fighting for, snatching at crumbs of learning that fell from rich tables, struggling to a hard knowledge which well knew its own limitations, it was he of whom this was expected. He glanced across the car. Edward Everett sat there, the orator of the following day, the finished gentleman, the careful student, the heir of traditions of learning and breeding, of scholarly instincts and resources. The self-made president gazed at him wistfully. From him the people might expect and would get a balanced and polished oration. For that end he had been born, and inheritance and opportunity and inclination had worked together for that end's perfection. While Lincoln had wrested from a scanty schooling a command of English, clear and forcible always, but, he feared, rough-hewn, lacking, he feared, in finish and in breadth, of what use was it for such a one to try to fashion a speech fit to take a place by the side of Everett's silver sentences? He sighed, yet the people had a right to the best he could give, and he would give them his best. At least he could see to it that the words were real and were short, at least he would not so exhaust their patience. And the work might as well be done now in the leisure of the journey. He put a hand, 
big, powerful, labor-knotted, into first one sagging pocket and then another, in search of a pencil, and drew out one broken across the end. He glanced about inquiringly. There was nothing to write upon. Across the car, the Secretary of State had just opened a package of books, and their wrapping of brown paper lay on the floor, torn carelessly in a zigzag. The President stretched a long arm. "'Mr. Seward, may I have this to do a little writing?' he asked, and the secretary protested, insisting on finding better material. But Lincoln, with few words, had his way, and soon the untidy stump of a pencil was at work, and the great head, the deep-lined face, bent over Seward's bit of brown paper, the whole man absorbed in his task. Earnestly, with that capacity for taking infinite pains, which had been defined as genius, he laboured as the hours flew, building together close-fitted word on word, sentence on sentence. As the sculptor must dream the statue prisoned in the marble, as the artist must dream the picture to come from the brilliant unmeaning of his palette, as the musician dreams a song, so he who writes must have a vision of his finished work before he touches, to begin it, a medium more elastic, more vivid, more powerful than any other. Words, prismatic bits of humanity, old as the pharaohs, new as the Arabs of the street, broken, sparkling, alive, from the age-long life of the race. Abraham Lincoln, with a clear thought in his mind of what he would say, found the sentences that came to him colorless, wooden. A wonder flashed over him once or twice, of Everett's skill with these symbols, which, it seemed to him, were to the Bostonian a keyboard facile to make music, to Lincoln tools to do his labor. He put the idea aside, for it hindered him. As he found the sword fitted to his hand, he must fight with it. It might be that he, as well as Everett, could say that which should go straight from him to his people, to the nation who struggled at his back towards a goal. At least each syllable, he said, should be chiseled from the rock of his sincerity. So he cut here and there an adjective, here and there a phrase, bearing the heart of his thought, leaving no ribbon or flower of rhetoric to flutter in the eyes of those with whom he would be utterly honest. And when he had done, he had read the speech and dropped it from his hand to the floor, and stared again from the window. It was the best he could do, and it was a failure. So, with the pang of the workman, who believes his work done wrong, he lifted and folded the torn bit of paper, and put it in his pocket, and put aside the thought of it, as of a bad thing which he might not better, and turned and talked cheerfully with his friends. At eleven o'clock on the morning of the day following, on November 19, 1863, a vast silent multitude billowed, like waves of the sea, over what had been not long before the battlefield of Gettysburg. There were wounded soldiers there, who had beaten their way four months before through a singeing fire across these quiet fields, who had seen the men die who were buried here. There were troops, grave and responsible, who must soon go again into battle. There were the rank and file of an everyday American gathering in surging thousands, and above them all, on the open-air platform, there were the leaders of the land, the pilots who today lifted a hand from the wheel of the ship of state to salute the memory of those gone down in the storm. 
most of the men in that group of honor are now passed over to the majority but their names are not dead in american history great ghosts who walk still in the annals of their country their flesh-and-blood faces were turned attentively that bright, still November afternoon towards the orator of the day, whose voice held the audience. For two hours Everett spoke, and the throng listened untired, fascinated by the dignity of his high-bred look and manner, almost as much, perhaps, as by the speech which has taken a place in literature. As he had been expected to speak, he spoke, of the great battle, of the causes of the war, of the results to come after. It was an oration which missed no shade of expression, no reach of grasp. Yet there were those in the multitude, sympathetic to a unit as it was with the northern cause, who grew restless when this man who had been crowned with so thick a laurel wreath by Americans spoke of Americans as rebels, of a cause for which honest Americans were giving their lives as a crime. The days were war days, and men's passions were inflamed. Yet there were men who listened to Edward Everett, who believed that his great speech would have been greater, unenforced with bitterness. As the clear, cultivated voice fell into silence, the mass of people burst into a long storm of applause, for they knew that they had heard an oration which was an event. They clapped and cheered him again and again and again, as good citizens acclaim a man worthy of honor, whom they have delighted to honor. At last, as the ex-governor of Massachusetts, the ex-ambassador to England, the ex-secretary of state, the ex-senator of the United States, handsome, distinguished, graceful, sure of voice and of movement, took his seat, a tall, gaunt figure detached itself from the group on the platform, and slouched slowly across the open space, and stood facing the audience. A stir and a whisper brushed over the field of humanity, as if a breeze had rippled a monstrous bed of poppies. This was the president. A quivering silence settled down, and every eye was wide to watch this strange, disappointing appearance, every ear alert to catch the first sound of his voice. Suddenly the voice came, in a queer, squeaking falsetto. The effect on the audience was irrepressible, ghastly. After Everett's deep tones, after the strain of expectancy, this extraordinary, gaunt apparition, this high, thin sound from the huge body, were too much for the American crowd's sense of humor, always stronger than its sense of reverence. A suppressed, yet unmistakable titter caught the throng, ran through it, and was gone. Yet no one who knew the President's face could doubt that he had heard it and had understood. Calmly enough, after a pause almost too slight to be recognized, he went on, and in a dozen words his tones had gathered volume, he had come to his power and dignity. There was no smile now on any face of those who listened. People stopped breathing, rather, as if they feared to miss an inflection. A loose-hung figure, six feet four inches high, he towered above them, conscious of, and quietly ignoring, the bad first impression, unconscious of a charm of personality, which reversed that impression within a sentence. That these people were his only thought. He had something to say to them. What did it matter about him or his voice? Four score and seven years ago, spoke the president, 
Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation, so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. There was no sound from the silent, vast assembly. The President's large figure stood before them, at first inspired, glorified with the thrill and swing of his words, lapsing slowly in the stillness into lax, ungraceful lines. He stared at them a moment with sad eyes, full of gentleness, of resignation, and in the deep quiet they stared at him. Not a hand was lifted in applause. Slowly, the big, awkward man slouched back across the platform and sank into his seat, and yet there was no sound of approval, of recognition from the audience. Only a long sigh ran like a ripple on an ocean through rank after rank. In Lincoln's heart, a throb of pain answered it. His speech had been, as he feared it would be, a failure. As he gazed steadily at these, his countrymen, who would not give him even a little perfunctory applause for his best effort, he knew that the disappointment of it cut into his soul. And then he was aware that there was music. The choir was singing a dirge. His part was done, and his part had failed. When the ceremonies were over, Everett at once found the President. Mr. President, he began, your speech but Lincoln had interrupted, flashing a kindly smile down at him, laying a hand on his shoulder. "'We'll manage not to talk about my speech, Mr. Everett,' he said. "'This isn't the first time I felt that my dignity ought not to permit me to be a public speaker.' He went on in a few cordial sentences to pay tribute to the orator of the occasion. Everett listened thoughtfully, and when the chief had done, "'Mr. President,' he said simply, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. But Lincoln shook his head and laughed and turned to speak to a newcomer with no change of opinion. He was apt to trust his own judgments. End of Part One